Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host, but she had to run to an emergency add-on surgery, so I'll be going her alone for this one. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we're going to review some of the most important recent literature in our field. We've worked with the publishers of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery to pick some of the most downloaded articles from the past few years, and then we've invited the authors to discuss their research. Each of these articles has been downloaded more than 6,000 times. So these are high-impact research articles, and our hope is this provides some listeners with highlights from the journal. First, we have Luke Austin. Luke is a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the Rothman Institute. He's here to discuss this article entitled, The Effect of Preoperative Education, on opioid consumption in patients undergoing arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, a prospective randomized clinical trial. This study was also awarded the NEAR Award in 2018. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Uh, I really appreciate the introduction. I'm really happy and excited to be here. Uh, this podcast you're doing is great. And um, I, I think, you know, I've been listening to it. Um, and I hope that this is helpful for, for all the AS membership that's, that's listening also. Luke, this is a great study. Can you just give us a two-minute summary of your study, what you did and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, first off, the question, a little background. I mean, I think six, seven years ago when this, when we started thinking about this, we, uh, we all knew that something was wrong in the way we were were treating our patients with pain. Um, We were seeing a lot of patients coming into the office, you know, two weeks out that were in a lot of pain. And I look back and think that maybe some of these people were actually in withdrawal, you know, they were depressed, anxious, painful, tachycardic, you know, all these different things that we thought were pain, but maybe were other things. We were given a lot of narcotics to help treat patients with a rotator cuff. And um, if, if you can let me have a minute, you know, one thing that happened around the same time, we had the traveling European fellows come to talk to us at the Rothman Institute. And they mentioned uh, how uh, they were telling us their research on rotator cuff, and they talked about how they treated postoperative pain. And many of them were only using tramadol or, in, in tough cases, Tylenol number three. And this really opened up my mind to this idea that we could be doing these surgeries with certainly a lot less narcotics. So, um, you know, at that point, it was tough to, to totally turn the ship around. So instead of being against narcotics, we thought we'd be for something, and that was educating patients. So you know, there's really nobody out there that wants to become an opiate addict. So if you teach patients prior to giving them opioids, then it's very possible that they're going to use less of them. So that's really where the idea came from. Um, So we just came up with a question that uh, educating patients, letting them know prior to the use of opioids would really help them reduce sort of on their own and bring them into decision making to reduce their level of opioids afterwards. So uh, what we thought, we were early in this this topic, so we wanted to do a good study. So we decided to do a prospective, randomized, controlled study. It was actually blinded to the patients. We didn't tell them what we were doing. We just told them we were going to follow their pain afterwards. Um, that's kind of nice we were able to do that because it was a little bit before education had become mandated and um, the laws had started coming out. So we were able to put together a good study design. Um, we brought on one of uh, our pain management doc, uh, docs, Mitchell Freeman, to help us come up with the education. Um, and really, the big points with the education were just to let people know that that pain is a normal postoperative uh, occurrence. Uh, it doesn't indicate a problem. 
In fact, uh, without pain, you're probably not healing appropriately. So that was one topic we wanted to know. We wanted them to know that we were there for them, that they could get in touch with us, that we, we, we would certainly be willing to help them and treat their pain. And then we also wanted to make sure uh, that they understood about opioids, that even at prescribed doses, patients can become tolerant, dependent, or addicted um, to opioids. So uh, the last thing we wanted them to know was that we had an expectation that they would be off of an opioid in about five days afterwards. So setting up an expectation form, those were the main points we wanted our patients to know in the education group. So we came up with a, a control group, and that was just basically signing up people like we are, always had before. And then our study group was getting this education that I just mentioned. Um, our pain protocol, uh, we pre-medicated with Tylenol and Lyrica. We then gave them a single-dose interscaling block, and we sent uh, people home with Percocet 10-325, 50 pills, and indomethacin 75 milligrams to sustain release uh, for five days. And then if they called in for, for more pain, we gave them all Percocet 5 through 25, 30 pills, just to make it very standardized. And then we followed these people um, for three months afterwards to see how they did. Uh, our primary outcome was the number of uh, pain pills they took. Uh, secondary outcomes were the VS pain score um, and when they stopped using the opioids. We also uh, gathered quite a bit of demographics of the patients prior. So um, after running the study, what we found, uh, the real important things were that, in fact, education really did help. Um, pay, the, the, the patients in the education group uh, took substantially less opioid pills uh, at six weeks and three months than those that didn't receive any education. Um, we also found uh, that you were much higher likely to stop opioids between two to six weeks, about 1.6 times more likely if you had education. And between six weeks and three months, you're 2.2 uh, times more likely to stop taking opioids if you were educated rather than non-educated. Uh, one of those findings that was, we had two sort of interesting findings beyond that. One was that the education group that took less opioids actually had less pain at two weeks and six weeks in our follow-up time points, which was a bit of a surprise to me, Peter, because you would think those that were getting the opioids would have a, le a lower BS pain score. So that was pretty interesting. And we can certainly talk about that more on why maybe. The other thing was um, we included both opiate naive patients in the study and people that were taking opioids prior to surgery. And uh, what we found is in the group that was taking opioids prior to surgery, if they were educated, they really had a significant effect modification. They were 6.8 times more likely to stop opioids than those uh, people that were taking opioids prior to surgery that didn't get education. So that was another interesting finding. Um, so in the end, we concluded that education was in fact a, a good modality uh, to help reduce opioids after rotator cuff surgery. Um, and uh, not only that, that we found uh, that even in patients that were taking opiates prior, it was very effective uh, to give them the education also. So, Luke, this is a big study. Tell us a little about the team you had assembled to accomplish this kind of study. Yeah, Peter, um, I'm really fortunate to have a great team uh, with this study. Uh, it took a lot of work, a lot of time to do this. Um, we have a great research department at Rothman, and I uh, would really like to point out a couple people in particular, Joe Abood and Fotis Jumakaris, uh, who were involved in the study with me, along with our, we had a great fellow, Alex LM at the time, and, and several good research fellows. 
uh, that also helped out a bunch. And, and I think it's worthwhile pointing out Usman Saeed, who really kept this, this study flowing throughout its entire course. Luke, I think it's um, such a simple thing you guys did, but such a such a dramatic effect. Um, I want to review. There's there's a piece that was in the middle of that that I think is really important for our listeners for you know the take home points. You said there's three portions to the education program. I just want to make sure I have them right. The first one was it's normal to have pain. That's expected. The second one I think was we're here for you. If it's not okay, you got to call us. And then the third one I think was. It is our expectation you will not take opioids beyond five days from surgery. Is that those were the three main aspects you think? Yeah, I, th- I think those were the main aspects. Now we did talk also about what were the side effects of opioids. You know, what to tell people what tolerance, dependence, addiction, and withdrawal were. So, you know, we all we were able to fit this all in a one-page information sheet to send home with the patients. And our video was only two minutes, so you can get through these these talking points pretty quick. But yeah, those were the things we touched on. And this is so I I read this study and I listened to you present it and I definitely went home and changed some things. Um, tell us how you've changed your practice since this study. So, um, you know, once again, back uh, six, seven years ago, when I started thinking about this, along with my co-authors, um, my, my big goal was to see if I could get rid of opioids entirely. And, you know, to get to that point, I think there had to be a lot of research. It was really the standard of care. Um, to give patients opioids and even high dose, strong, long acting opioids, you know, 10 years ago when I first started. So this was sort of a, a start down that path to try to eliminate these medications as much as I could from my practice. So um, one thing I will tell you, I was pretty nervous uh, starting this off and starting to have conversations with patients about me not giving them as much opioids as, as maybe I thought they wanted. And, you know, I was kind of young and early in my practice. and um, thought that the, these people wouldn't want to have surgery with me. Um, but when I started talking to them and having these conversations, the exact opposite is what I found. Um, most of the, the people I spoke with uh, knew somebody, a family member, um, a friend who had a problem with opioids. And, and even some of them would tell me about how they had a, a, a family member, a son, a daughter, a sibling that had actually died of overdose. And almost all of them universally were very happy to have this conversation with me. Um, and many, you know, to my surprise, many of people had started telling me they didn't even want to have these medications, which was exactly the opposite of what, about, what I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, I certainly that's been my experience as well, that when you start talking about it, you, you, you realize how frequently patients have had experiences externally that are negative with these medications. Tell us what your current pain reduction protocol is for shoulder surgery. What are you doing right now? Sure. Um, right now. I pre-medicate with Tylenol. Um, I used to use Lyrica, but I think the studies out there now show that if you're going to give an interscaling nerve block, you don't you don't really need it. Doesn't seem to help that much, so I cut that out. So Tylenol pre-op, I use an interscaling uh, liposomal um, based uh, block. I've um, I don't have a lot of research on that, but I do feel anecdotally that it seems to be helping reduce uh, rebound pain. Um, intraoperative patients get IV, uh, Tordal, uh, postoperatively, I give them Tylenol around the clock for five days. I give them a prescription of Tordal, um, for three days. Uh, I then give them, I, I like cryotherapy. So as many people as I can get a cryo cuff or at least, um, you know, large frozen bags of peas, I tell them to get from the store. 
And I tell them that's that's their main post-operative pain protocol. I did I, I send them home with a script for tramadol now for breakthrough pain. Um, and and I also let them know that they have our phone number to get in touch with. That they you know these are things we can change over the phone now. We can change them on the computer. So I think limiting sending them home with a strong um, uh, opioid is something that I've done and found it to be very successful. Now, I I will tell you, I still give them to people. I'm not against them. It's just I find if I don't put them in their hands, they very infrequently use them. And, um, you know, for the listener who's doing what we traditionally have done and giving 50 Percocets and telling the patients, take these as long as you need them, what what's an easy way to get started? Like, how do, do you have any tips for listeners as to how to easily progress towards where you are now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was tough. You know, I, I had a tough time getting to this point also. And, you know, it's been five years. So, you know, you don't need to rush it. Um, you don't need to just cut it off um, cold turkey. That's not really um, what I would recommend at all. I think that um, one of the big issues are uh, NSAIDs or the anti-inflammatory class of medication. I find those to be extremely useful. Um, I, I like to use Tordol. Um, for a while, uh, I know a lot of people were concerned that these anti-inflammatories limited cuff healing, but, but uh, you know, read, read the literature. Uh, it's been shown in animals, but never in humans. And I think one of the things I found that really solidified in my use of anti-inflammatories was some papers that showed that opioids actually slow healing just as, just as much, you know, in animals also. So just because you're not using an NSAID doesn't mean the opioid isn't slowing, you know, at least bone healing in, in, in patients and, and probably cuff healing. So it's not that opioids don't, don't do the same thing as NSAID. So start adding things, look into multimodal. Um, I think interscaling blocks are very useful. I think cryotherapy is very useful. And then and just, just start reducing the number of those pain pills um, that you're prescribing. And I think what you'll find over time is people aren't calling that much for them. Um, if you put less in their hands, they will use less. Um, if, if I can go off kind of on a little bit of a tangent with that too, um, there was a, a recent study in your journal in JSES actually, where they did an opiate-free arthroplasty uh, study, which I thought was a, a really interesting study um, out of the guys from Ortho Carolina who looked into you know trying to do total shoulders without opioids and not even not even tramadol. And they have some pretty good uh, protocols in there that you can look at. Um, but the, the interesting thing in that study, uh, I uh, was um, actually, we we're about to publish a similar study. It's funny, it had the similar title, Opiate Free Rotator Cuff Repair. And I think I now I know why it wasn't accepted in JSCS, uh, but I won't hold that against you. Um, but uh, what we found is if you don't take an opioid, most people at three days are doing very well. Um, meaning there seems to be something in the biofeedback mechanism. If you can hold out from an opiate for three days, people don't need them anymore. And in the study in JSES, they found that the VS pain score leveled out and started to go down at three days. And in our study, um, which was a little bit different, we found a very similar finding. So what I'm starting to look at now is it seems like if you can keep your patients away from an opiate for three days after surgery, it very well may be all you have to do. Now, are you guys, one of the ways that you can achieve that, that at least certainly we're doing at my center, is using interscaling catheters that stay in for the first 72 hours. It sounds like you're doing a single shot with liposomal. Did I understand that correctly? You're not doing catheters? 
Yeah, I mean, um, where I'm at, we're doing a single shot liposomal um, bupivacaine. And, uh, but, but at other institutions where I work, actually, they are doing the catheters. And I think that's a great, great option. If, um, certainly if, if your anesthesiologists are comfortable with it, I, I really like that option also. Certainly that's another piece of it. You need to have a team that's on the same page there. One of the pieces Absolutely. you touched upon that I think is super interesting in your study is that not only did the study group better education have, have less medication, but they had better pain control, which I, at first when I read it, I thought that I'd read it incorrectly. So tell us, tell, tell us how you think that's possible. Do you think that, that that first piece telling patients pain is normal, it's pain, pain is healing, that that, that helps patients to better conceptualize and reduce their pain scores? T- tell us where you think that comes from. Yeah, sure, Peter. I, I think there's two, um, two reasons. And this really, like I said, this, this one was shocking to me too. So I've kind of been thinking about it and working on trying to figure out why. So where I'm at with it um, is this. One, I think the education is a great coping mechanism. If people know what to expect, they seem to be able to cope with pain better. So let them know what we know. And, um, and, and as we do that, I think patients do better. It also prevents uh, catastrophizing, which is another big concern when, when people don't think their pain is ever going to go away because maybe you, you never told them that it would. Um, they just kind of start circling around that and becoming really, frankly, quite obsessed with the pain itself. And it's hard for them to move on. So I think, I think education is a great coping tool. The, the second thing is, um, I think if, if I started looking a little bit into the, the neurophysiology of pain and, you know, I don't want to get too much into this, but um, there, pain has a, got a, a biofeedback loop. So if, if you're talking about surgery where you cut the skin, you have no susceptive fibers that, you know, tell you your brain that you're having pain. Um, the brain then will send its own endogenous opioids to that area. Um, it's called enkephalin is, is the opioid that it releases. And so that calms all the nerves that are, that are causing the pain from your shoulder, right? Um, but if you, add, like any biofeedback loop, if you start adding an exogenous opioid, then the body can't self-regulate. And so I think the less opioids you use, the body can get to that point of self-regulation faster. I mean, it's kind of similar to steroids. If you give steroids, right, and you stop them immediately, you can have an Addisonian crisis. So I think there's some true, you know, neurophysiology at work with what we're looking at also. The other thing that I think was super interesting that you brought up in your initial discussion was this subpopulation of patients that come in already on narcotics. Now, I think it's remarkable in your study that even these patients benefited from education. And I, we just heard about your pain management protocol. Tell, you, tell us how you're handling these patients. The patient who comes in and says, Doc, I've been taking this oxycodone for the past 10 years. How do you handle that in the patient that's going to undergo shoulder surgery? Yeah, that's, that's a tough patient. And um, I, think, I think we all know that, that those patients tend to have worse outcomes also. So um, I do, I do try to separate the two, like an opioid-naive patient versus those that come in that have already uh, been on opioids prior to your surgery. And on average, I, I want to know who they uh, have been getting their opioids from, um, and I want them to have a, a consultation with them beforehand and so, so that there's not a confusion about who's managing the opioids. So I, I would not recommend people to start taking on those patients um, and, and thinking that you're going to be able to do too much more or, or really be able to get them off. I think that's a challenge that's sort of well beyond 
what I would expect from any orthopedic surgeon. But, you know, I still do think that you can make a huge change um, by just giving them the facts, by giving that education. I mean, in our study, I I was shocked that it was a 6.8 times lower rate of continuum at three months than if you didn't educate them. So there is certainly something you can do for these patients. But with that said, a lot of them did continue to use opioids long term. And it's not something I think any of us should really plan to take care of long term. So I would really highly recommend that they get a consult from their pain management doctor or primary care doctor, whoever's managing them um, prior to surgery. Yeah, I think that's great advice to get to get another specialist involved in those cases, um, especially so there can be no confusion about where the narcotics are coming from, because they're definitely you don't you don't want to be in a multiple prescriber situation with those medications. Absolutely. Well, look, this has been a, a just a great summary of a phenomenal study that I really do think is one of the, one of a group that have really opened our eyes to a problem we were having that um, just gives gives the readers such a and the listeners such a tangible, easy thing you can do going forward. Emphasize those three points we talked about in your education, and you you will see a dramatic difference. So I I think you're to be congratulated, and I am. Um, I, I just am um, kind of in awe of what you guys have done. I, I, I think it's a great, great, great um, addition to our literature and um, a great step forward for our clinical practice. Thanks, Peter. I, I really appreciate it. It's been great being on the podcast with you. Next up, we have Dr. Mohit Galatra. Mohit is a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Maryland in Baltimore and is here to discuss his article entitled, Benzoyl Peroxide Effectively Decreases Preoperative Cutibacterium Acne Shoulder Burden a prospective randomized controlled trial. This study was awarded the NEAR Award in 2018. Mohit, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a two-minute summary of your study, what you did and what you found? Sure. The the goal of this study was to evaluate benzoyl peroxide to see if it would reduce the acne on the skin any better than our usual use of chlorhexidine. Now, the goal of the study was to do this with at-home prep and then to look at skin counts prior to uh, prep in the OR. So it's a randomized control trial of 80 patients who are undergoing shoulder surgery, and participants were randomized to either a 5% benzoyl peroxide at-home prep for three days versus a 4% chlorhexidine at-home prep for three days. We use the non-operative shoulder as a negative control to be a correlate of how skin counts had decreased uh, before and after the skin prep. We looked at four specific sites on the skin, the uh, anterior, lateral, posterior, and the axilla. And we used a detergent scrub technique, which is the dermatologic standard for looking at skin acnes, which requires a one-minute scrub of the skin using a a, a sort of an aggressive uh, scraping technique. In summary, we found that there were fewer positive cultures in the patients that had uh, benzoyl peroxide when comparing to their opposite side. And probably more significantly, the overall bacterial burden of C. acnes uh, was decreased when using benzoyl peroxide, but was unchanged when using chlorhexidine, especially at the anterior and posterior portal sites. So in summary, we found that benzoyl peroxide was more effective than chlorhexidine producing C-acne on the shoulder, but it's still unknown the clinical benefit. 
we think it might be helpful since the overall bacterial burden does come down, but is it enough to really decrease the clinical infection rate? That's still unknown. Yeah, well, one of the things that I, uh, so first off, this is a phenomenal study. One of the factors you presented that I've, I've had some difficulty translating into real world is you present the results as a logarithmic reduction. Can you give us a better idea of what this might mean in terms of number of positive cultures or maybe in terms of number of infections prevented? Yeah, sure. The, you know, it's a hard thing in the microbiology world, they will commonly use logarithmic reductions as a uh, outcome tool. And that we use that here because although the overall positive cultures did come down with benzoyl peroxide, uh, majority of the cultures were still positive. And that's because the technique we used is a quantification technique in which even if one culture was positive, that counts as positive, and it was as high as one million colony forming units found. So there's a wide range of what was positive. So since this wasn't the typical way our, our labs usually uh, test for C. acnes, we found that we had to present our results both as positive and negative cultures. But since it was so, so much more sensitive, the technique, we wanted to present it as the overall bacterial burden. So although using this technique, benzoyl peroxide did not consistently sterilize the skin, it did bring the overall uh, counts down by on, on almost tenfold. And so, you know, what does that mean clinically? We really don't know. You know, is that, you know, tenfold drop in the acnes on the skin enough to reduce an infection? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. You know, if you are somebody who has a very high load to begin with, maybe it's not. You know, maybe it only brings out enough to decrease your risk but not eliminate it because since it did not sterilize the skin. But if someone is a, a lower burden to start with, maybe it's enough. And then you start to think about what else you can do to bring those numbers down further. So I think this is a really practice altering study. Have you changed your practice since you did this trial? I have. Uh, you know, we had a relatively high infection rate, especially at the VA, which is one place where I do some arthroplasty where our overall infection rate was around four and a half percent, which is a little bit higher, especially for primary arthroplasty than some other studies. And majority of those infections were delayed with uh, skin drainage more than six months from the surgery. And the majority were actually culture negative, although a lot of them were C. acne as well. And since we've used it, our numbers have has seemed to have come down. Now, we don't have the follow-up to say definitively, but it seems to be helping at minimum, not hurting. So tell us your full current infection prophylaxis, prophylaxis protocol. What do, you, what do you give pre-op? What do you do in the OR? What do you do post-op? So uh, for me, I use both chlorhexidine and benzoyl peroxide, which is not how the study was designed. It was an either-or study, and I use them both. I use the chlorhexidine as wipes for three days prior to surgery, including the morning of. I use the 5% benzoyl peroxide gel as well 
also for three days, including the morning of. I use it for all uh, shoulder arthroplasty patients, whether they're primaries or revisions. And then uh, intra-op, um, I have not gone to using hydrogen peroxide like your study has shown, as well as the one from Jefferson, although I think it's completely reasonable. It may actually be better than the peroxide because you don't have to worry about patient compliance. Uh, so I don't know if one is better or, or, or not head to head, but I do think it's reasonable. I haven't gone to it yet. I use alcohol and a chlorohestrin scrub in the OR. And then I use uh, our typical uh, perioperative antibiotics, usually a single dose pre-op and, and nothing else post-op. So now you, you said you use a 5% benzoyl peroxide gel. So do you do you give that to the patients? Do you tell the patients you need to buy this from the pharmacy? How do you, how do you organize that in your practice? So I you know I briefly after the study was ordering it for the patients to pick up at the pharmacy, and I found in, that in conversation with patients that the compliance did start to drop. So then I switched to having our office buy it in bulk similar to how we already were doing for our hip and knee patients using chlorhexidine wipes. And then when buying it in bulk, I would then give it to the patients at their preoperative visit. I found that that helped with some of the patient compliance. So do you have a separate, for every patient who has a shoulder replacement with Dr. Galatra, you have a separate preoperative visit. This is not the visit in which you sign up for the shoulder replacement. This is a separate visit in which they come to see you and they get their benzoyl peroxide at that visit. Yeah, I, I, I am doing, you know, unless the visit is very close to the time of surgery, often it's not, then I will do a separate preoperative visit in which we review our indications, our risks, provide our chlorhexidine wipes, our benzoyl peroxide. I usually like to do that at least within three or four weeks of their operation if I haven't seen them already at that time. Because I think that's a that critical... Yeah, a critical piece of this is that if you're not having a preoperative visit, you probably need to have a separate visit. And that's probably a good thing anyway for all the other reasons you mentioned. But if you want to organize this for the five days ahead of time, that, that maybe is, is necessary. Did you get any, have you gotten any feedback from patients about reactions to it or, oh, I didn't like it or it made my skin itchy or have you had any patients who canceled because of skin reactions to it? No, I, I personally have not had that problem, although I have talked to some surgeons from other institutions who have used the 10%, which is sort of the max you can go over the counter, and you can go even higher than that if you go to prescription strength, and, and they have had issues with a higher dosage. So with the gel or the foam at 5%, I haven't seen it as an issue so far. Okay, Gary. So that's, I think, good for our listeners. If you're going to do this, you want 5%. And um, it can be gel or foam, but that 5% is a critical number. Well, I, mean, I think this was a great first step for us. You mentioned that it's imperfect. Tell us what the next steps are for you in understanding how to better prevent C. acnes infections. So I guess there's a lot of things that I'm thinking about. You know, so and we're really fortunate for this study to work with Dr. Jim Layden, who was former professor of dermatology at Penn, and he has been studying C. acnes for almost 30 years, you know, since the 70s. 
and he's got over 50 publications on the topic in the dermatology literature. And when I first asked him about this issue in the shoulder, he kind of laughed at us and said, hey, that problem's already been solved. And what he meant was, you know, the use of some type of peroxide, whether it's hydrogen or benzoyl, has been used for so long on the derm side. And whether it's with clindamycin or without it, it has effectively shown to decrease infection in acne-based patients. I explained to him that our situation is a little bit different, uh, even though he's right that we're way behind the dermatologists and we haven't listened to them either. But our problem is different in that we're not trying to eliminate the acnes for a long period of time, at least on the skin. We're just trying to, at minimum, decrease it, if not temporarily sterilize skin to hopefully help with infection and not push it deep in. At least that's the theory. Although recent studies from JSES may call that to question. So, so when I think of that way, you know, at first he was recommending us to take it for a month before surgery. But when the goal was, you know, maybe not to eliminate it for a long period of time, but just for a short period of time, it was his recommendation, you know, from his experience to do a shorter course, you know, less than a week. And so that's how, that was the genesis of the study and where we started. Now, is that really going to be enough to decrease infection? We don't know the answer. You know, to do a randomized controlled trial uh, for anything, whether it's hydrogen peroxide or benzoyl peroxide, it's going to take thousands of patients to figure out. So it may start with, you know, a big uh, sort of multi-center prospective observational cohorts or even retrospective ones to see if we're even moving the needle and before we decide on the right combination of skin preps to to run a, a larger prospective trial. One of the hidden in, in what you just said was that he recommended clindamycin. Did you think about doing the study with clindamycin in addition to benzoyl peroxide? Tell us about your decision-making there and why you're not using that in your practice, if that's one of the recommendations. Yeah, I think it's a controversial uh, thing, and I don't know the right answer. But at least with our with Dr. Layden's advice, he had thought at first not to do it because there is some concern when using an additional antibiotic in your skin prep that it can lead to uh, uh, bacterial resistance. Now, it's not commonly reported, but there is some reports. And so if we were going to start mass using it on every shoulder osteoplasty patient, uh, we do not want to make a, at least even if it's mostly hypothetical, a superbug. Uh, and that that kind of problem has not been reported with benzoproxide or betadine or really any other skin-based bactericidal prep. And so just from a stewardship perspective, we decided not to, although it's mostly, you know, theory-based at this point. Well, certainly that's an important aspect is, you know, not just prevention, but um, prevention of resistance. There's one final thing I want to ask you about. You know, we recently had Dr. Robert Hudek uh, from Germany on the podcast, and he shared his research that suggests that C-acne may, in some cases, be an intra-articular commensal. Now, my understanding of your findings are isolated to a skin prep. What are, you, what are your thoughts on preparing the deep wound? And um, where, where, do you think that, where do you think the research you've done so far can take us deeper into the wound to try and prevent deep infections? Yeah, I, I remember that presentation from Hudak at the 
closed meeting uh, last year, and then I saw it was recently published. Uh, I think within the last few weeks, and and you know it's worrisome. You know, if we, you know, I sort of alluded to earlier, we think that this is a skin problem, and then it gets pushed down deeper. But if it is commensal and or living intracellularly deeper, then I don't think the skin prep will help. You know, for that scenario. And it seemed, at least in the review of that that one study, that most of their deep findings were AC joint based. So maybe the joints closer to the skin have a higher rate of it, but it was still in the glenohumeral joint as well. Uh, so, you know, what's the role then for hydrogen peroxide wash deeper? You know, you know, for the hip and knee guys, some of these betadine to prevent staph infections and spine spine folks as well. But uh, will will that be the next frontier? Is a deeper wash uh, that that could help? And that will that even get to these intracellular the acnes and and improve pressure rates? I don't know the answer. I actually think this is where an animal model can be helpful because the overall infection rates are so low that it's really hard to study any of these things clinically. And so if you can have a reliable animal model, which is hard to do, it's hard to get diagnosed to grow in a rodent, then, then you could at least start to answer some of these questions biologically, looking at the biologic pathways prior to you know, bigger clinical trials. I think it's such an important point you bring up that that's probably that, that work is going to need to be done for us to completely solve that problem. And it's such difficult work. Um, and it's not, it's not in our wheelhouses or orthopedic surgeons, but for for us to really make the leap, it may be necessary because, as you mentioned, the infections with these are not common. So it's it's almost impossible to study the real out endpoint you're interested in. Right. What's your take on it, uh, Peter? I know you've done the hydrogen peroxide work. What's your feel for for how it's helped your patients and and the effectiveness, you know, at at the uh, skin side and even you know subdermally. Well, I. Um, you know, we showed in our study that hydrogen peroxide did make a difference. We did our study slightly differently than than yours. We did, um, I don't think the effect is tenfold. So one of the things that I think is interesting you said is that benzoyl peroxide was a tenfold redu- reduction in culture positivity. The result we saw was not that dramatic. It was several fold, but was not tenfold. The thing that I think is nice about the hydrogen peroxide is it doesn't rely upon patient compliance. It doesn't require us to purchase in bulk benzoyl peroxide and then have the difficulty of making sure it gets to the patients in time. Um, so I think it's a, maybe a little more applicable, but not as powerful. And I wonder about the combination of the two. I, I wonder about the combination of the two with a deep wash, as you mentioned, but I think there are some concerns about hydrogen peroxide deep. I mean, it is, it, it, it is not a benign substance. Um, and especially if the goal is to kill Piacnes that's inside of normal cells, I worry about that. I mean, I worry that we could do some damage to the shoulder. You could damage the cuff. You could damage, um, you could do neurovascular damage that may be even hard to measure, but would probably be real. So it's, I think that's the, the, what you mentioned about an animal while being really useful, that we probably are going to need to come up with some new therapeutics that we, we at some point are probably going to have reached the end of what we can learn from dermatology because the problem they're solving is to be frank, simpler. Yeah, no doubt. The, you know, when betadine lavage first was being introduced a while ago, there was a big concern about the cytotoxic effects, like you mentioned. And then 
uh, we had to get down to a very dilute concentration to maximize the bactericidal and minimize the, the cytotoxic. And hydroperoxide is going to be the same kind of balance and not easy to do. The other thing that's come up with the acne uh, in the skin is that it, since it is commensal, uh, is what's its role in the microbiome of the skin? And are we upsetting the balance enough to cause a different problem or even different uh, increased infection for, for something else like staph? You know, fortunately, I have not seen that yet. And, and maybe that's a bigger concern if we did two weeks worth or even a week's worth of uh, treatment prior. But at least in a few days worth, it seems to be uh, that we're at least not making the problem worse. Uh, but I understand where that concern comes from, uh, from the microbiome perspective. Certainly that's a concern because there's, it's normal for there to be bacteria on the skin. Um, certainly staph, we've learned a lot more about effectively killing than piacnes, which I think is part of the problem with this bacteria. And part of the reason I think that your study is so powerful is because our traditional skin prep really is ineffective against piacnes. Um, and so we have to do something, we have to think outside the box and do something like you did to really try and reduce uh, the uh, bacterial burden on the skin. Yeah, it's a tough problem. Well, Mohan, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and telling us about your research. I think you're to be congratulated for conducting a great study and um, moving us moving us forward on, in this important area. And um, I'm excited to see what you guys will do in the future. And um, we'll stay tuned to figure out how else I need to change my practice the next time you tell me. It was great catch up with you, Peter. Thanks for having me on, and and I appreciate the kind words. And I really want to give thanks again to our dermatology colleagues. They were a big help to us. And then the work done from Paul Sethi in, in Connecticut because we sort of dovetailed, dovetailed off his idea about using it on the shoulder. So definitely not the first study and won't be the last. Well, congratulations again on your study. Thanks again. Next up, we have Dr. Gregory Hoy. Greg is a shoulder and elbow surgeon in Melbourne, Australia, and he's here to discuss his article entitled The Effects of Conservative Rehabilitation Program for Multidirectional Instability of the Shoulder. We're also now joined by Rachel Frank. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Greg, and uh, thanks for joining us, Rach. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Greg, can you give us a two-minute summary of your study, what you guys did, and what you found? Sure. Uh, this paper is the, the outcome of a PhD thesis by the lead author, who's Lynn Watson, and her shoulder physiotherapy group, which is Melbourne Shoulder Group. Uh, they excluded traumatic instability in older patients, um, as well as any confounders like um, neurological injury or voluntary instability. And, and we set up a, an achievable goal of 12 weeks uh, for compliance for, um, for measuring the effects of this trial. Now, the, the treatment program was the Watson MDI Rehabilitation Program, which really concentrates on scapular control and um, and it combines this with the other shoulder exercises to improve the function. Um, we uh, used it as a single group study. Um, one physio did all the assessment, another physio did all the treatment, and uh, then we looked at the outcomes with um, primary and secondary factors. The, the primary ones were the MISS score, which is the Melbourne Instability Shoulder Score, which was published in the JSCS in 2005 and uh, as well as the WASI and the Oxford Instability Score. And we collected these scores, but also looked at scapular rotation and scapular strength um, while they were going through the program. 
one of the outcomes that we looked at was the correction of the um, of the uh, miss scores, which were dramatically improved. We looked at the strength, which was improved in scapular control. And uh, the outcome of this paper is really to show that a conservative program can make good effects in, uh, in improving MDI symptoms. You know, Greg, these results are really impressive and they clearly demonstrate that conservative treatment can work for this condition, especially if performed correctly. Many of these patients often present, at least in our clinic, saying that they've tried PT and it doesn't work, or it doesn't work for them, or they've tried it on their other shoulder or whatever it might be. Can you give us and our listeners some advice as to how to motivate these patients to pursue this treatment methodology when sometimes surgery seems like the more aggressive but potentially quicker answer for them? Certainly, certainly. I think one of the hassles is uh, understanding the concept of what laxity and multidirectional instability really is. The, the patients have lax shoulder tissues and if you operate on them immediately to tighten the joint, then over time they're going to loosen up again. And if you don't change their muscle motor patterns over the, the time of your management, failure is not only likely, but it's really inevitable as the outcome for that. So the old Cubs and Ambry mnemonic that we used to use as med students uh, really to some extent is still relevant because we have to convince patients that the best management is the correct type of physiotherapy plus or minus surgery. Now one of the issues for us is when patients come and say we've had physiotherapy, um, oftentimes they've been put into a program of physio that's not controlling the scapula uh, well enough or, or, or at all in fact and if you can get the patient to engage in the concept of saying well can you just get a second opinion for the physiotherapy to start with and see how we go and then we'll look at surgery as an option if that doesn't work. Um, to that end we've found pretty good results with patients engaging or they really need to own the disease and if they take ownership of the management as well we see pretty good results over that time period and the time period for this study was of course just the 12 week period. Now, I think that the time period is super interesting. You know, you mentioned this was a 12-week time period. Tell us a little bit about the time courses here. Do you think you would have seen a difference at six weeks? Do you think at six months the changes would have been even more dramatic? Or do you think that things level off by 12 weeks? Tell us how you picked that time period. So uh, that was a convenience uh, uh, selection for the program of the, for the study, to be honest. I think one of the issues is that six weeks is really too short. And, and the reason for that is that this physio group that we use, that we work with in the shoulder group, like to deconstruct the shoulder actions before reconstructing them. So really, in the first few weeks, they're actually going backwards to try and rebuild uh, by stopping doing rotator cuff exercises and starting to do scapular control, shrugging exercises, and building from there so they do more complex actions as they go through it. Some take between three and six months. They're not all fixed at, at, at three months, there's no doubt. Um, but both cost and time commitments for the patients starts to reduce their enthusiasm after that and and I think if they don't feel the need to top it up so to speak with uh, some reviews occasionally further down the track then that's a problem. Interestingly in a previous study we did we looked at capsular shrinkage many years ago like many people did and we found that we had great results up until 12 months but that, that was combined with this MDI program this Watson MDI program but at two years 
the recurrence rates were starting to climb. And the reason why is because they got tired of the program and they just lost interest. And I think if you can convince a patient that they need to engage in this program as a maintenance program, I tell patients that you get up in the morning and you do your teeth to stop going to a dentist and you do your shoulder exercises to stop coming to me. Greg, a big part of the protocol in this study, and I'm sure in practice, um, is testing which positions or arm positions seem to be the most problematic for patients. Can you tell us and the listeners here how you do this um, in clinic during your physical examination and how you would guide other, you know, other listeners who might be reading your article but you know, don't have the ability to see you do this in clinic or see your physiotherapist do this in their um, clinical setting? Sure. In my first uh, consultation with patients, I spend a fair bit of time on the examination and I do it both standing and lying. So if, if they do the standing exercises, what I look at is uh, whether they've got symptoms in elevation. And interestingly, of course, one of the common uh, confusions with uh, posterior instability, for example, or posterior dominant multidirectional instability is that they often present with what seems like rotated cuff signs because when you uh, get them to do resisted forward elevation, they say they develop pain. But of course, that can be posterior instability producing that as well. So what I do is I get the patient uh, and look at them from behind, uh, undress them properly. You need to see their scapula and their scapular rotation. And if they are getting relative winging, which is not a neurological phenomenon, but a, a, a protective postural phenomenon, you can actually reduce the humeral head from the posterior side by putting your hand up over the shoulder and your thumb into the posterior axilla and push the humeral head back in. And when you do that, they can sometimes get dramatic improvements in their symptoms, but also in their strength and elevation. So that's in the standing position. Then I lie them down. And of course, we do that for checking for anterior instability, doing their apprehension and relocation tests. But I also add to that uh, the jerk test. And I do that test in various internal rotation degrees. And I think with posterior dominant multidirection instability, they get uh, winding up of the shoulder and they get more and more symptoms as they push out the back to do the jerk test and internal rotation. So I do the examination both standing and lying. Do you have a name for that humeral head assess test? I, have, I, I think I've seen people do that, but I've never heard it described quite so, uh, so eloquently. Watson, it's almost actually, like... Yeah, sure. Yeah, go, go ahead. Um, Lynn Watson has described that. And in fact, uh, in the program, which is published in Shoulder and Elbow, the British Journal, uh, in two components, there's a part one and part two in 2016 and 17, uh, they actually show the manoeuvre where you push the humeral head back in uh, to, uh, to test for that um, reduction manoeuvre and the decrease in the symptoms. And Lynn's developed that over the years. She's uh, she's been the driver of a lot of this program, and uh, you know I, I need to defer to her as being the uh, uh, the brains behind a lot of this um, development work. Well, certainly, I think that um, you're to be congratulated in, on on collaborating with um, them for a great study. I mean, I I think these patients can be really challenging in clinic, and uh, this this conversation I think provides listeners with some tools. Tell us a little bit about you know I'm. I'm sure this doesn't work for everybody. You know, if this doesn't work, tell us about your surgical approach to these patients. So if the patient uh, is sent off to the physiotherapy program, I usually arrange to see them at three or six months. And, uh, and, I, and I need to give them some time to try and 
uh, as I said earlier, get ownership of the disease and the treatment program. But if they fail to get adequate improvement, and, and the classic patients are the very young females, uh, as long as you make sure they don't have too significant an element of voluntary instability, then I consider the surgical option. Um, but the surgical option for me is interesting because uh, I've reviewed my arthroscopic reconstruction figures over the last 10 years, and I would probably have 35% of my patients have a posterior element to their instability at surgery, and that's much higher than the normal rate that's quoted in the literature or that's seen by a lot of different practitioners. So I presume that is because they, um, uh, they are coming from this combined group approach. Um, so I do a lot of posterior stabilisation in balancing the shoulder. If I do a multi-directional instability patient, I always do both front and back. And, uh, and I use um, anchors rather than stitches as my um, most important guide to it because I want to make sure that I'm holding the capsula repair or tightening up to the labrum. So you're, so you're putting in anchors. You're, it sounds like you're always fixing back and front and you have an arthroscopic approach. Tell us a little bit, um, when, you, when you've done this, have you had, do you have any advice for listeners about how you choose how much to placate? I think a lot of people struggle with that. How much is too much? Is there, do you have any like rubrics you use in the operating room to decide where you put, how much you, you pull the sutures in? Uh, what you're asking me, Peter, is how long is a piece of string? And, and of course, I don't have a magic answer for that. But I do uh, feel that you can make an assessment over time with some experience of doing shoulder arthroscopy of how voluminous the capsule is. I clearly think that uh, some surgeons are tightening patients too much. And I think that the balance effect of, of tightening them to a moderate degree at the same time as, as realising that the physiotherapy is just as important as the surgery, it goes a long way to getting them to reset their shoulder. So I, I call the surgery a reset button and then they can do the physio much better, uh, complete the program and, uh, and continue with maintenance. Because we know that if you do a capsule application for multidirectional instability, that it will stretch out over time. Uh, and so the aim of doing it is to assist them to do the physiotherapy program better. You know, one question I think that comes up with this patient population in particular is the potential for concomitant hyperlaxity. And I know you looked at that in the study, looking at the Baton score, and it looks like nearly half of the cohort um, or just over had um, generalized hypermobility. Do you find a lot of those patients who have the hypermobility have this on both shoulders? Do you find that other joints, you know, when you're talking to them and going through their history, have um, also had instability such as their hips or their elbows? Um, or are you really finding this to be isolated to the one shoulder that's problematic that they're seeing you for? Uh, certainly not uh, an isolated phenomenon for each individual patient. I think that uh, we are fairly regularly involving our genetics um, uh, colleagues from one of the uh, local hospitals in assessing whether the patients actually have a, an Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And the classification of Ehlers-Danlos and the genetics of Ehlers-Danlos is, is still under some conjecture about uh, who qualifies for some of the uh, typical type 3 Ehlers-Danlos conditions where it's really just joint laxity. I do think that um, patients should always have bilateral uh, physiotherapy programs being done anyway. But I would say that probably 
between 30 and 40% of the patients would come back for their other shoulder to be done. And a regular outcome from surgery at about the six month mark is patients are saying it feels more stable on the other side. And that's something that's important to recognise, but it's also important to recognise that, that they are going to stretch up a little bit more over time. I would think that uh, probably uh, a quarter of them would have complained of previous problems with knees uh, or ankles. Um, hips is interesting because you mentioned hips and, and laxity is certainly a problem for the true Ehlers-Danlos patient, but I don't see as many patients with uh, true hip laxity. I think the more recent recognition of um, lesions in the hip with hip arthroscopy will probably change that over time. Well, um, I think it's a great study that you guys did, and I think it provides a bunch of useful insights to this difficult problem that we all see clinically and how to manage that. I think your 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 um, advice about telling the patient, you know, this is like brushing your teeth to avoid seeing the shoulder surgeon is is an, is an excellent little tidbit, and it's maybe something that all patients can understand. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to us about your study and about your team's approach to this difficult problem. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel. Well, that's about all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you so much to all of our guests. And for our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. For Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.